your skeletons and shivers down your spine. Shrieking skulls will shock your soul and seal your doom tonight. Spooky, scary skeletons speak with such a screech. You'll shake and shudder in surprise when you hear these zombies shriek. Don't start the episode that way. <laughs> okay, so this is episode 45. Here with Mr. James. Harold Heavy Hand. Sha la 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 Mr. Jones. la 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 Oh, here, Mister. Oh, you got any? You got any movie pitches for me today, Harold? Heavy hands? No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's real simple then. We can just get straight into the stories. Easy, easy peasy, lemon squeezy. Oh shit. I mean that uh that Sherlock ending <laughs> to episode thirty two. I mean that was definitely something if I don't mind saying so myself. I don't know if we'll ever we'll ever get back to that. Sherlock, there, jump. It's good stuff. Oh, how you doing? Great. <laughs> good. I'm glad. I'm glad to hear it. Oh. Sipping on my purple hay. What do you feel like reading today? I want to read something that has claws. <laughs> what is that? What has claws in it? Claws? Claws. <laughs> claws. <laughs> I'm literally searching. Claws. Claws. Oh. Unsettling stories. Okay. Here we go. Unsettling stories we mostly read on uh, Disco Dracula's episodes. Because now I now I have. Them. Unsettling stories are good because they kind of they they walk this line between just trying to make you uncomfortable and actually being a little bit creepy. I think their stories are pretty pretty tight, pretty tight butthole. This uh this story. This story is called My Wife. My Wife! <laughs> My wife and I discovered the terrifying truth behind the bird's nest on our property. You got any bird nests on your property? I live in a fucking dorm style apartment. So that's a yes. It's likely. <laughs> sure. It's a lot of treats. I was doing yard work the other day and I found a smashed egg on the ground. Smashed baby bird egg. And in that moment... I got real existential, and then swept it up. While I was driving here, I saw about uh, like twelve dead deer on the side of the highway. Mm-hmm. One had its arm, and it was like, <laughs> <laughs> they won't be able to see what you did. But its arm was just fucking dangling, like up in the air. Oh yeah, nice. It was, it was like up here, but then it was like <laughs> right there. <laughs> oh, good stuff, roadkill. <laughs> Why isn't anyone's name Roadkill? <laughs> oh, Ronnie Roadkill. Ronnie Roadkill. Shit. I don't even know who I would give that to. Honestly. <laughs> you want to start this? Alright. My wife and I discovered the terrifying truth behind the bird's nest on our property. 
From unsettling stories. The fourth of the unsettling stories. No. Nope. <laughs> We've read many more than four of them. Okay. Who Shanice. Shanice. Shanice and I are lucky enough to live in a... I'm already fucking up, dude. Shanice and I are lucky enough to live in an area... Re- replete? Replete. Replete? Do I need to do, like, a Google search to figure out what that means? I imagine it means bountiful. Bountiful. Much wildlife. Okay. Uh, Shanice and I are lucky enough to live in an area replete with wildlife. Every morning, when we're sitting at the porch table having coffee or simply looking out for a kitchen window, deer, foxes, squirrels, groundhogs, chipmunks, or other local fauna appear in our large backyard. Having property near a national park has its perks. Well, Shawnees. <laughs> Shawnees. Shawnees. I've never met a Shawnese. I wish I could say yeah. <laughs> but I can't. <laughs> okay. Well, Shawnees is a neighbored, enamored. What are with these fucking words, dude? Enamored. Enamored? I've never seen these words in my life. <laughs> Do you want a different story? <laughs> Gotta push through. Okay. While Shanice is enamored with all things furry and adorable, or hurts adorbs, which she squeals just to watch me cringe. I've grown to love birds, don't get me wrong. I'm also quite fond of a totes adorbs variety of animals. Our cat, Mousers, totes exemplifies adorbs. Still, something about birds relaxes me in a way I find difficult to describe. We have such a magnificent diversity of flying creatures that even after years of living here, I think I see a new kind every week. I've set up quite a few feeding stations throughout our backyard. My personal favorite is a spot right outside the kitchen windows where the hummingbirds congregate. Congregate. It amazes me. <laughs> I hit it that time? Yeah. Alright. It amazes me. <laughs> oh shit, I'm getting a call, nigga. You can answer it. I'm not gonna answer that. It can wait. We're doing much more important shit right now. <laughs> I'm just gonna hide it under your controller. <clears throat> Where was I? Congratulate. It amazes me. It amazes me how tiny. how their tiny bodies can contain so much energy to flap their delicate wings as quickly as they do and flit away in the blink of an eye. But it's not just the hummingbirds in our yard. Sparrows and jays tweet, ravens, and Jack Dawes call. Jack Dawes. Jack Dawes. I've never seen a Jack. I can't say I've seen a Jack Daw before. <laughs> what are you doing with your face? <laughs> Some kind of Jackass! <laughs> Some kind of jackdaw! <laughs> and the occasional owl endlessly asks the same question. Whenever the weather Ooh. allows it. <laughs> Get it? <laughs> That's how owls sound. Whenever the weather allows it, I'll wander our property in the adjacent park with my head tilted towards the trees to see which of my friends are out and about. Sometimes I, 
Sometimes. Sometimes I came across a hiker or a fellow bird watcher and we'd get to talk about our hobbies and interests before I'd retreat back to my own head and continue walking and observing. I won't tell Shanice, but sometimes I wish I was a Disney princess who could tame birds and go on adventures with them. A 34-year-old bearded Disney princess with three-plate squat and a four-plate deadlift. Don't judge me. I like this guy. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah just imagine, good. like, this, like, lumberjack-looking motherfucker, like, twirling out in the woods, like, oh, like, the birds just, like, fly around him. With, uh, like, three dining plates in one hand and four dining plates in the other. I can't even lift that many plates. <laughs> it's a lot of plates. I'd never make a good waiter. <laughs> <laughs> one evening, as we sat in the living room and watched TV, we heard the jingle of the bell on Meowster's collar as she came in the room. Through the cat door. She came in the room. Fuck it. Unlocked it. Walked in. Closed it behind her. She wandered into the living room and looked at Shanice and me, deciding whose lap she'd grace with her presence. A moment later, I was the chosen one. Meowster's leapt on my lap and immediately began extending and retracting her claws and then there it is! Claws. claws, baby! Can we get like a claw sound effect? Like a party, like a party noise, or a, like a. Maybe one of those. Air- Good screaming, everybody! Can we, Can this be the claw special? I don't. I think I only found one story that uses well, that's the fucking word claw. You're gonna have to go on Google and find some more. Okay. Big! Matey! Claw! I'm just gonna start the whole thing over again. Meowsers leapt into my lap and immediately began expanding and retracting her claws in an autonomic display of pleasurable biscuit making. Oh, that's what it means. I was like, what? This fucking cat's making biscuits? Cat's making biscuits <laughs> for the that's, that's one talented fucking cat can open and close doors, can make biscuits for the, for the owners. <laughs> My cats fucking suck compared to this cat. At a commercial, Shawnee got up and went to the kitchen to refill her wine glass. I heard a goddamn mouth. I looked down at the cat and asked her if she peed on the floor again. Meowsers purred adoringly. Shanice came back to the room holding something in her paper towel. She brought it closer and I could see it was a baby bird, maybe Robin belly had been torn open and its guts dangled from the wound. Ugly, yellowish, red liquid bloomed outward from the viscera. 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 Clinging to the towel. Agate. The next day I went and looked outside of the house for nests that might be reachable by meowsers. I hated to disturb them, but I figured the birds would prefer inconvenience over the gleeful murder of their babies by my cat. I, uh, there were wild cats. Haysbrick! There were cats that would, like, wander the area when I lived in Nanticoke. And, uh, one time I woke up with a full dead squirrel on, on my, like, doormat outside my apartment. And I was just like... Oh. A cat's trying to impress me right now, but I'm, I'm more so scared for my life. It's like a warning. 
I saw. It uh, was like it was like laying on its back with its arms and legs like reached out like this. Was, that's fucked up. Yeah. I, I saw something on Facebook about it. Not to one up you or anything, but I saw something slightly more fucked up dealing yeah. with a cat. All right. So I was delivering for FedEx. That's that's my occupation. For those that don't know. That's why he has such heavy hands. It doesn't make my job easier. So there's this house. It is way back in the fucking woods behind a fucking uh, it's a ski ski resort. Mm-hmm. They live behind it. It's fucking nuts. Mm-hmm. But anyway, I fucking hate going there, dude. It's on the top of a mountain. So I'm back there. I'm walking away. I hear I hear these tiny tiny mews. I'm like, what the fuck is that? So I turn around. I see this cat. Fucking size of my hand. Mm. Alright, that's not a good <laughs> little bit of cat. Because I have heavy hands. They don't know how big my hands are. True. Uh, it was tiny. So I pick it up. I'm like, where the fuck did you come from? And his, his fucking eyes like gouged out and missing and shit. I'm like, holy shit. So I carry this little fucking thing. <clears throat> I carry it back to the house. I'm like, is this, is this yours? <laughs> and they're like, it, it lives here. <laughs> they just they just vaguely address the, the ski resort. Yeah, and I'm like the fuck, dude? I see like seven cats in there! Why are you letting this shit out here to die? It's probably dead right now. To be honest. Probably. Rest in how, peace. How's it fucking gonna survive out there? One eye. Tiny little thing. Probably can't, probably can't, yeah, probably can't even kill like, any animals. Oh, shit, dude. Nice. They weren't too hard to find, but my quick inspection of the first few determined they were empty and abandoned. <laughs> After another few minutes, I found. Ooh, I'm gonna throw up. <laughs> I found one with tiny nipples inside. I wondered. <laughs> tiny, tiny babies. Shit! Where did I see nipples? Where did nipples come you, from? You just you pulled that out of nowhere. <laughs> You pulled that out of the fucking Wow! I don't see nipples anywhere on this page. <laughs> Maybe that'll be our word for the next story. I'll search nipples after this and try and find a nipple story. I found one with tiny babies inside. I wondered where their mom was. All three of them chirped pathetically as I took great care in lifting the nest and bringing it up the steps to the porch. I'd set up a ladder, which led up to the roof. I knew meowsers couldn't get up there. And I hoped the shadow of the chimney would be a safe spot with relative shelter from the elements. While I carried the nest, I noticed a few details I'd missed at my first glance. When I realized what they were, my blood ran cool. <laughs> I'm just struggling, dude. The nest was woven together with what had to be human hair. All different colors, too. I placed it down on the edge of the porch and took a closer look. It was definitely air. I moved it around a little bit with my fingers as the bird's high-pitched screams of terror and hunger drowned out the sing-song calls of am- ubiquitous adults buried within the body of the nest were tattered scrapes of leathery material and hard gray fragments. I gingerly pulled one out of my thumb and forefinger. As soon as I felt it, I knew what it was. A human tooth. I'm reading this so, like, lackadaisical, like, this guy 
Well, I'm I mean, he- human too. <laughs> I mean, I mean, in out in the woods like that, sometimes like an animal will just pick up anything and use it as structure for anything. Like, <clears throat> I'm pretty sure there's a there's a type of animal that literally lives inside of dark, like dead carcasses of bigger animals just to survive. You know, so you kind of run with what you're given. Now well, maybe I'll change up the tone. Something was terrible and terribly wrong. <laughs> I ran back to the other abandoned nests that I had only glanced at before. Closer inspection yielded similar construction. When I turned one of them over, I saw a child's pink necklace was embelled, embelled, embedded, embelled, embedded, embelled, uh, within the tangle of hair. I felt panic rise in my chest. After I'd calmed my breathing enough to yell, I screamed for Shonis to come outside. She had to see what I was seeing to make sure I wasn't going crazy. Shanice was visibly shaken by my find. The whole thing got even worse when she pointed out the leathery material with skin. Without even discussing to one other, we both knew what we needed to do. After stopping at the garage to get some tools and a couple sheets of plywood, we threw it all in the pickup, grabbed the ladder from the porch, and drove it over to the edge of our property, about a quarter mile from the house. When we got to the shed, sure enough, there was a big hole on the roof. Shanice had been bugging me for almost two years to make sure the shed was sturdy and strong, but I'd always put it off because the smell got to me. Shanice teased me and made me do the majority of the work myself, always laughing when I had to stop and retch. What a fucking bitch. After I hammered the last nail, I went inside to make sure there were no birds trapped in there. I stepped over the putrif... Pooch... Putrifying. Putrifying. Bodies of the hikers and bird watchers, and sure enough, a tiny nest was hidden in the corner. A couple baby birds laying in inside. How they managed to sleep without hammering and bickering was beyond me. I smiled and picked up their little home and brought it out into the light. I handed it to Shanice, who grinned, grinned at the sight of the babies, and I closed the shed door and replaced the padlock. While we headed back towards the house, Shanice carefully stroked the head of one of the sleeping babies, too, with her index finger. You know, she said, I guess baby birds can be pretty dorps, too. I beamed. Maybe she was finally coming around. So it's about a bunch of murderers who live in the woods. Yeah, dude. Nice. Solid twist. Didn't expect the, the the guy's whole, like, I'm a huge guy who could lift many plates yeah, to come back. And large waiter. So apparently he's a he's a killing, a murdering bird watcher who doesn't like other bird watchers and hikers in his property. Yes, my sir. birds! Yeah, that's understandable, too. I can't really blame him. Man, that story was painful to get through. Unsettling stories are usually written with, like, a higher caliber of writing style, and that's that's... I tend to enjoy them. This is one I've actually been waiting to read for a while, and I, I really think I'm gonna like this one. What damn! This one's uh, eleven miles from Creepy Pasta. You ever heard of this one? And I would walk eleven miles, and I would walk eleven more, just to be the, the man who walked eleven miles to find her at your door.
old. <laughs> God damn it, you're going back into it. Oh, that's a good that's a good intro to the story though. Eleven miles, creepypasta. Do you have something that you truly, relentlessly desire? Is there something else that you would go completely to the end of the world to get? Well, lucky for you, there's a way to achieve what you're looking for, and you won't need to go to the end of the world to get it, but you will need to go somewhere, and the place may be too out of reach for some, but it's not far away, closer than one may believe, and there's requirements that some individuals may not meet. First, whatever it is you seek, know that you must seriously desire what you want. Probably like endless socks. Endless socks, I like that. Let's run with endless socks. In your eyes, it should be something you need definitely need socks. If you begin the journey without the correct state of mind, you will surely fail, as it will be near impossible to turn back once the journey starts. The second requirement is that you will need a vehicle of sorts. Most use a car as his most comfortable choice. There have been a select few that have used small motor vehicles such as ATVs or motorcycles, but this has proven to be quite difficult, as the conditions of the journey can prove to be too bothersome. What if you desire a car? You just shit out of luck? Just gotta run the entire 11 miles. (laughs) Do not use a vehicle too large or noticeable, as you will need some of the cover of night to be most safe. Also, while any sort of car will do, you may not want to choose the most expensive or cherished vehicle. You can take your slick new black Mercedes for the drive if you'd like, but don't expect it to come out in a pristine state. Make sure your vehicle is completely fueled before beginning the drive. The first task to accomplish is to locate the road. It doesn't have a name, it's not on the map, and technically it doesn't even exist. It will only show up if you're looking for it at the right time, and you will only spot it if you know what you're looking for. Finally, you must be alone during the journey. You don't think you'd be able to go with a group, did you? It must be night when you begin. Choose the time of night where you believe the roads are least populated. Drive to any area that is just a stretch of road surrounded by woods. Here's where you want to start paying close attention. If you're looking for the road, it will turn up eventually, but you need to search for the road's hint in order to pull down the right one. Once you're close, you will see or feel its signs, but what the signs will be depend on what it is you desire. For example, if you're in search of wealth, you may spot shimmers on the empty branches of trees as they resemble the shine of gold or diamonds. If you seek love, you may begin to see rose petals slowly dance in the light breeze blowing in the road's direction. If you seek revenge, you might sense an ever-growing feeling of heat or anger in your body as you approach. Just know what it is you really want, and you'll have no problem finding the turn. So, if we're looking for socks, we're probably going to see some socks in the branches. <laughs> you can just get out and grab the socks and you're done. No need to find the road. Found it one mile. Well, I mean, why can't they just... <laughs> Once you're sure you found the revealed road, take a deep breath and turn down onto it. At this point, you will have officially started down the nameless road, which brings you through 11 miles, leading to whatever it is you seek. Each mile will test your desire and will expose if you really do want what you're searching for. Before you go any further, stop there and be wary of a few advisements. Do not turn on the radio during the drive. Do not use a phone during the drive. Reception would be cut off anyway. Do not open the windows during the drive. Make sure they are closed before you continue. If you are riding a vehicle without windows or a top, then prepare for the worst, as the odds are heavily against you. Do not attempt to leave your vehicle at any time. You'll never want to exceed 30 miles per hour unless you're desperate to make it through a section of the road. And most importantly, as with any drive, buckle up. Click it or ticket. Huh? Feel free to prepare and make sure you're ready. <laughs> Once the road has been entered, time has stopped, so you don't need to worry about losing the night. Though you may not notice, you're actually in your own world anymore. 
Take one last moment to realize that once the first mile is over, there is no turning back. If you ponder turning back at all, know that you shouldn't even be on this journey in the first place. Once all is done, continue on the road. On the first mile, you won't see much change. The road passes through mostly wood, with a few miles being an exception. The air will turn a bit colder, in which you should turn on the heating system in the vehicle if it has one. You won't want to take your eyes off the road later. Take some time to calm any uneasiness by admiring some of the night sky. You'll see it completely lined with stars, more than you would ever believe possible. If the weather was cloudy beforehand, you'll also notice that the sky is now clear. On the second mile, the air will become even colder. This is primarily the reason why traveling in an open vehicle is very difficult. With each mile, the air will drop in temperature even if the season should be warm. If the air is too cold to bear, even with the heat on, your only option is to speed up. With each mile, the road also becomes more complex, taking more turns and showing an increasing amount of road hazards. Be sure to always keep focused on the road in front of you in order to avoid as many bumps or obstacles as possible. Hitting a few rocks and potholes won't hamper your progress too much, but you'll want to keep in the best condition for as long as possible. If your vehicle is forced to a stop because of damage, then there's nothing left you can do but eventually freeze to death. On the third mile, you may begin to spot silhouettes of human figures in the linings of the trees. Pay no attention to them, even if they seem to get closer. It'll be hard to resist peeking at the unnerving distant appearances, but know that they will reveal themselves later. At this mile, the road will become dirt if you weren't driving on it in the beginning. Keep to the center of the path as it will become narrow and wide at random intervals. On a quick side note, should you ever attempt to turn around despite the previous warnings, you'll be left on a path which never ends. You would simply run out of fuel eventually and be left to freeze in the cold conditions. On the fourth mile, you will not only see more of the figures, but you will begin to, in a sense, hear them. In the back of your mind, a very faint, unintelligible whisper will echo. These will come and go, but you can't stop them. If they become bothersome or distracting, try and tune them out by thinking of what it is you desire. Socks. <laughs> Warm feet. Warm toeses. Attempting to listen and determine what the voices are saying will only attract them to you, and you want to be as far away from them as you can. They'll be closer later, so there's no use bringing them near you this early. On the fifth mile, you will come to a clearing. The lining of the trees to your left will disappear to reveal a lake with no end, with a beaming great moon over the water. The illumination from the moon will be so spectacular that the vehicle's headlights will no longer be required. Restrain yourself from gazing at it. If you look at its light for even more than a few seconds, the road in front of you will end, throwing your vehicle into the water in which you will freeze in mere minutes. The voices will be gone for this mile, but don't rejoice yet. They'll be back. On the sixth mile, take into account that you are more than halfway done. Despite the progress, you may lose hope here. The stars will have disappeared at this point, leaving the sky an empty, black abyss. The clearing will have ended, leading you back into the woods. The only light you will have will be provided by your vehicle's headlights, but they will flicker from time to time, even if you're sure they're in perfect working order. If you have a radio in the vehicle, it will probably turn on here automatically. If you didn't turn it off beforehand, it will produce an overwhelming screech that will send you off the path. A calm voice will then begin to speak about your greatest fears, what it is you are horrified of in your life. It will speak in a way that will cause you to visualize the words in your mind, so don't listen to it. If you begin to comprehend what it's saying, the horrors will prove too much for you to stay on the road safely. Attempting to turn off the radio will prove no use. Speed up if you need to. Just keep your mind off the voice as much as you can. As you approach the end of the mile, the voice will now fade out of the speakers, leaving your ears at peace. For now. I just imagine it saying, like, if, if it was, like, the most horrifying thing that could happen at that point in time, when you're alone in the woods, 
I feel like the most fucked up thing it could say is just like, There's someone in the back seat. <laughs> There's someone right behind you. There's banana bread in the back seat. Watch out. Your toes are getting real cold. On the seventh mile, the voices from the figures will return. It won't sound like a whisper this time, but more like distant screams growing closer with each second. At some point on this mile, you hear one of them in your ear as if one of them was right behind you. See? See? Oh. This is because one of the figures have found their way into your vehicle. Do not turn around. Their faces will shock you into paralysis, leading you off the road. If you don't draw attention to it, it will become uninterested and hopefully leave. These beings are said to be ones who have traveled down this road before, but were not successful. They live the remainder of their existence, suffering in the darkness, with their only goal being to bring other travelers down with them. It has been said from experience that these beings can't physically harm you, so as long as they don't cause you to wreck, you should be fine. On the eighth mile, slow down if you're going too fast. The road here takes very sharp turns. Which, if overshot, will It's all ogre now. It's all ogre now. <laughs> Get out of Somebody my Somebody wants to tell me. <laughs> if you overshot... You know, that's a that's a foolproof way to win this. Just sing that for like a, 11 <clears throat> miles worth of driving. Nothing will bring you down then. <laughs> Some Smash Mouth All-Star. Which, if overshot, will throw the vehicle into a pit through the trees. The cold is near fatal here. If you were to have a glass or a bottle of liquid in your vehicle, it would be solid in seconds. The heating system will have become completely obsolete. Your headlights will flicker more, sometimes shutting off for a few seconds. You should break if this happens, but do not completely stop. The figures will be following you at this point, and should you stop for too long, they will surround you and trap your vehicle. More of their screams can be heard from outside your doors, sometimes even sounding of maniacal laughter. Their hands will claw at your windows. Oh! There is game! Screaming, everybody! If you don't make it here, pray that it's the freezing that ends you. <coughs> On the ninth mile, your vehicle will stall. The headlights will shut off, as will all other systems inside. There's nothing you can do to prevent this. What you will need to do is close your eyes and immediately attempt to restart the vehicle. Keep your eyes closed, as the figures would have surely surrounded you at this point. Starting the vehicle will frighten them, and they will all back away temporarily. This will give you a chance to start moving forward again. If you begin to hear the windows crack from the struggle, don't lose focus. The beings can alter the vehicle, but remember that they still do not have the strength to physically affect you. You will hear nothing but their voices rampage in your mind, as they could be anywhere between a dozen or a hundred after you now. Once you start the vehicle, floor it. Floor it so long as you can stay on the path. While the mile is done, the beings will retreat. On the tenth mile, the voices of the beings will stop. If you were to look in your rearview mirror, do not actually do this, you will see them following you, but not as if they were chasing. They're watching you, as if they were seeing you off. As you go down the tenth mile, the road will be smoother, as if you were back on the first mile. Figures will be lining the sides of the path ahead of you. They won't be after you, but they will watch you as you pass. Some have theorized that the beings are impressed here, that you have come a long way of the journey to what you desire. This is false. They are not impressed, but they are happy. They are happy you are about to approach the next mile. They are happy because you are most likely going to your death. On the eleventh and final mile, everything in your vehicle will lose power, as it did on the ninth mile. The vehicle would normally be immobile, but you will still be moving. An unknown force will be pulling you forward into the darkness. You will see a glowing red light up ahead, as if it was a light at the end of a tunnel. Close your eyes and cover them. Do whatever it takes to make sure you do not see what you are about to go through. 
Covering your ears would also be helpful, but keeping your eyes covered should be a higher priority. The red light is another clearing, but there's no moon or lake this time. Once it's entered, unrelenting and inconceivable noises will sound from all directions. No amount of bravery and conditioning will spare you from these sounds. The cold will turn to a merciless heat, burning all parts of the vehicle. You will feel the illusion of the flesh being burned off your bones, that every part of you is being destroyed as you travel through screams and audible suffering. As long as you keep your eyes closed and resist the urge to see where you are, you will survive through the suffering. This will last a total of 31 seconds, but many fail to keep their vision closed during that time and are left to the worst fate, the road. Where is this mile located? Those who have survived do not know, but some have named it the transmission from hell. But whether it's part of hell is debatable. After the final mile, power will return. Stop the vehicle. Take a moment to possibly regain some of your sanity. Let the screaming in your ears begin to fade, and know that you have nearly completed your journey with the hardest task overcome. Breathe, and begin to drive forward once again. After only a kilometer, your vehicle will arrive at a dead end. Stop here and don't attempt to move again. Nothing will happen right this second, but do not be disappointed. Relax and close your eyes. Imagine in your mind what it is you've desired the entire time. Socks. It will most likely still be the same as when you entered. But with some, this desire may actually change through making this journey. Think about what it is you went through, such terrifying and difficult means to acquire, and imagine possessing it in your hands. Once you have completely visualized this, slowly open your eyes. You will find yourself at the beginning of the unnamed road, where you first began. This may confuse you, but know that you are finished, your task is done. Your mind will then turn to your reward. If what you desired was material, check in the back seat or in the trunk if the object is larger. If the object was small enough, it might already be in your pocket. If what be you, in the trunk. Just a load a of fucking, shit a shit ton of socks. If what you desired was non-material, then do not be disappointed. If the change is not immediate, turn back to where you came from, and you will find it in your life that what you wanted is there. You may have found the love of your dreams. You may have gained unnatural, unimaginable power. You may have put your most hated enemy to the most satisfying revenge possible. You will have no doubt gained what you deserved. So now that the task is done, what's the catch? Is your vehicle cursed? Is there something you're about to lose? Is your death imminent? The answer to all is no, of course. You've done the challenge. You've proved worthy of what you desire. As stated before, the sounds of the 11th mile will continue to exist in your mind, potentially causing you some vivid and unusual nightmares, but these should prove as nothing compared to what you've gained. Now one last question, is there something else you desire? Are you not satisfied yet? After all, you're left right back where you started. The road's right in front of you. So are you up for another drive? If so, buckle up and just move forward. Shit. I like that one. Yeah, but what happens if you accidentally get on this road? Well, no, that's, that's the point. You have to you have to physically be looking for it, both oh, in your okay. minds in your mind's eye and in your car, like late at night. Like you have to be mind's thinking. Mind's eye, or yeah, whatever, or whatever. I actually think like that would that would make a pretty dope movie if you didn't know about why the person was driving on this road and if he was like telling the story to his friend, like if it was almost like an overhead narration the entire movie. And then I would love for like the twist to be the like. 
Shadow of Colossus style, like bring back your dead girlfriend. I think that would make a pretty killer fucking movie. Like he just opens his trunk at the end of the movie and is Hello <laughs> His dead girlfriend's I'm there. back <laughs> That's exactly how she'd sound too. With all wishes come with catch. <laughs> she fucking kills him? <laughs> no, her voice. <laughs> She's kind of sound like this though. She's Kermit the Frog's voice for the rest of the movie. Nah. <laughs> nah. <laughs> oh, good stuff. Let's see what else we got. Hey, we've actually read other gas station ones on your episode. Oh, really? I think so. I think one of your first episodes we read a gas station one. <laughs> this next story is from Reddit No Sleep. It's called, You Meet Such Interesting People on the Gas Station Graveyard Shift. Take it away. I mean, generally, you don't. Oh, he's talking about the title. Yeah. Whoa. It's a really hard for you to wrap your mind around. <laughs> a little bit. I mean, generally, you don't. It's the half-truth. There's definitely a higher proportion of weird or scary fuckers than a normal retail shift, but after a couple months on the job, you learn all the archetypes. The dead, tired Norns on their way home, the herds of teenagers on a candy bitch. That's us, though. Even though we ain't teenagers, we be up in there. And we be grinding on the bitty, and we be gushing. I love gushing. In my mouth on those gushes and we'd be twerking to that kick hottie and that drake call me on my cell phone let not wet on your candy the dead tired norms on their way home the herds of teenagers on a candy bitch that's us though we be grinding <laughs> start it over and then you go back into the same jerk <laughs> The meth heads who waste their entire month of food stamps on junk. The wine moms. The 24-hour gym rats. The alcoholics on bikes because of the DUI who panhandled two bucks for malt liquor. Doesn't take long to see it at all. And I've been here for years. Long enough to see what I call interesting. Even when your threshold for abnormal is off the chart, you still end up with stories of the inexplicable or unnerving. I'll start with the latter. Onus Autumns. On an. On a One. Sodom. One autumn night. Sodomy night. A man and a boy of about nine came in at 3 a.m. I yell a half hearted greeting and barely glance towards them before back to my phone. The boy makes a slow, cautious walk towards the candy aisle while the dad makes a beeline to the beer coolers. I can tell by his body language he's somewhere on the scale between unfriendly and angry. Shoulders forward, brisk, stompy steps. I sigh, anticipating an argument I've had many times. Last call was that too, I can't sell you that. He glances back at me and moves wordlessly down the hall, selects a tea, and heads to the counter. The way he walks gives me the impression he's gonna punch me. I ready myself and try to disarm him with a monotone. How you doing? He hard stares me for an uncomfortable few seconds and says, Back to Marlboro Reds. Relieved he didn't start whining or bargaining about his beer, I turn my back to him and grab the cigarettes and jump with a start at a yell of, Jack fucking carry up, man! I turn back and look past him to see his son at the candy aisle, thousand yard stare, not really trying to make a selection. The first real look I've had of him tells me the tears he's fighting back wouldn't be 
his first of the day. I ring the smokes and tea and say nothing, hoping, hoping, hoping it'll resolve itself dealing with the shit I see on a normal night. I've learned not to meddle. To no avail this time as he tosses a grimy $10 bill for his incomplete purchase and not 20 seconds after the time he yells, This fucker, come on! That's enough to stop my interest in customer service. Graveyard is an interesting dynamic. Obviously, we're supposed to have a slimy... Smiley. Slime. Slime time. Fucking Nickelodeon. <laughs> Obviously, we're supposed to have a smiley, welcoming personality. All clerks are expected. But also, I'm here alone and also need to give off an air of security. Cross certain lines and I stop being friendly. I say, hey, relax in a low tone and he turns back to me with the same intensity which with the yelled the intensity and with which say, he and yelled answered. and answered you you read the first part fine he turns back to me with the same intensity with which he yelled and answered what was that he can take two fucking minutes pick up the candy bar he wants you're invalidating any points you score for buying him one by being a dick you can shut the fuck up too! <laughs> I tell him, we're done here. Grab his purchases out of his reach and push his money back towards him. As I do, I notice the bill has blood on it. Then I notice his knuckles on his right hand are bleeding. Old caked blood still oozing. Now I'm sure this could get physical. I'm a solid three inches. And pro. <laughs> Wait, he's three inches tall? <laughs> no, like three inches. Finish the sentence. I'm a solid three inches and probably 40 pounds larger than him. Oh. But I, who knows what crazy has in his pockets. A brilliant company policy doesn't allow weapons, but I keep deterrence conveniently placed in reach. I position myself to grab the pry bar and tell him, I bet you boy would like to leave now. You can keep the camping. He gives me the same long, unsettling stare and replies calmly, I'll be right back. <laughs> I didn't stick around to see what he had in mind. I ran and locked myself in the back office and dialed 911-191-1001. I felt a little stupid describing a run-in with the guy who may just be an asshole, but I watched on the security camera as he rummaged in the back seat. I described the car to the operator and asked, Did he have a little boy with him? And she asked, Damn it! I just want to keep doing what... And she asked, Alright. Did he have a little boy with him? Before I was even off the call with her, I began to hear sirens. A lot of them. It took a few days and a few conversations with the police before I had the whole story. The response had been to an Amber Alert. Jack had lost visitation rights to see his son at the boy's request. Not content with the simple kidnap, his ex-wife was found unrecognizably mutilated with a claw hammer. Claw hammer! Good screaming, everybody! The wounds on his hand were splinters from her skull. This happened a six-hour drive from my store? and I was the first place they stopped. I try not to dwell on what might have happened if Jack had picked a chocolate in a timely manner. So 
so he was purposely taking a long time because he just watched his mom get brutally murdered with a claw hammer. The fuck's a claw hammer? Fuck if I know, but I want to know. No. I mean, yeah, I want to know now. Time to go baby bags. <laughs> Time to go to baby bags. <laughs> Alright, so I think this could be the last story on this episode of Larcha Poster. I mean, this was the claw special. The claw. Should I, like, input what's what's the, the aliens from Toy Story? The claw. <laughs> it moves. We <laughs> praise the claw. So this yeah. one's called A Funny Thing Happened from Creepypasta. There was no doubt. My mouth had moved a centimeter to the left overnight. What? I checked between reflection and picture before accepting the impossible. Hitler, you gotta see this. I called to my roommate, nicknamed for being the image of Aryan perfection. Blonde hair, blue eyes, the works. I find him in his favorite pass-out hiding place behind the couch under a layer of PBR cans. Listen, something funny is happening. I think I'm turning into one of those weirdies from the X-Files. Scholar! I give give him a shake. He doesn't show any response at all, not even his trademark. Fuck off. Looks like you reached for the moon and landed on your face last night. I'd hate to be you in a few hours. (laughs) Content, my transformation would remain after Hitler wakes up. I head to my kitchen for a breakfast of B12 vitamins before returning to the couch. I find a fresh nitrous cartridge from the box on the coffee table. Whip it good, as... Sage Hitler would say. Loaded into a brass cracker and give it a healthy twist, the aluminum seal punctures with a satisfying pop. Finally, I snap a balloon on the end and gently unscrew the device, filling the latex sphere with precious laughing gas. You ever do it with it? I'm pretty sure, uh, last time I went and saw a concert, (coughs) a bunch of dudes just standing outside one of the alleyways just doing whippets before we went in for the concert. Waiting for the air to warm up, I bounce the balloon against Hitler's sleeping face. Remind me, I take two vitamins for every lungful, right? I don't want to get limp dick. I like having feeling in my extremities. He gives a huge yawn and rolls over on his side. Two it is, then. I always get laughy before partaking in any narcotic, and this time's no different. I can hardly control my excitement as I pick the huge balloon off and take in the breath of sweet, sweet drug. My vision blurs and all thought takes on slanted quality. Our dog Trigger trots in from the hallway, which is about the most hilarious thing I've ever seen. I laugh and, can it be, Trigger laughs with me, licking chunks of hair out of my face. For a brief, awkward moment, I consider French kissing the Golden Retriever when I'm hit with a wave of dizziness. The room spins before me, and I have the nauseating feeling that I'm somehow looking at both the ceiling and the floor at the same time. Trigger sits down and tilts his head, wondering what this silly human is doing. I look past him and spot the cause of my discomfort in the reflection of our old TV. My face has changed. Again. I raise a hand, too scared to confirm what I'm seeing, but having to know. I touch my right eye, which has slipped down, socket and all, to rest beneath my chin. The pain that registered when I nudge its wet surface is proof of the awful reality. My ears, too, have gone for a trip around my skull and now reside one on the back of my head, the other on my neck. 
Though perhaps most terrifying of all is the new eye which has opened up on my cheek. This one a different color, unlike mine in every way, and looking, watching me, unblinking. Holy fuck shit! I look back at Trigger, but he's left the room, unimpressed by his master situation. Hitler! Hitler, wake up! I really go at him this time, alternating between kicking and slapping, but he's dead to the world. A doctor! I can call a doctor. There's gotta be someone else who's had this disease, problem, and been fixed. Even in a shit small town like this one. I reach for the phone, and in my pocket I realize it's not there. No! No! Why do I always lose everything? I consider looking for it, but catch another glimpse of my destroyed face in the hallway mirror. I've never been attractive, and now my face is a fucking Rubik's Cube, and decide to just drive the five minutes to the clinic. Time is of the essence, as they say. I pull on my hoodie and set out into the late afternoon air of Linderville. I've only just left the porch when I hear my best friend Chris talking a few doors over, and I pull the hood further down my face. I love the guy to death, but he's never been one for recreational drug use. Did Nitrous do this? And I didn't have time for a lecture. Yeah, I'm telling you, said Chris to a pretty girl in a short dress. This deer was bigger than a horse. Jumped out like he wanted to fucking die. I glance at his pickup. Sure enough, the front's been totaled and smeared with blood. That's not going to be cheap. Sucks to be you, buddy. I glance inside my garage and stop. Sucks to be me. The car's not there. I think for a moment, and the sun's beating down and soaking into the dark fabric I'm wearing when I'm caught off guard by the mental image of headlights cutting through the trees. I feel the blood drain from my face, and then, faint as a whisper, I recall my brother saying he'd borrow it. No choice, then. I foot it, carefully avoiding the eyes of the few pedestrians I pass until I make it to Dr. Glenn's family practice. He'd taken care of me since I'd smoking cans with BB guns with joints and was one of the, my favorite people. Even if he couldn't fix me, he'd console me until someone else could. There's the familiar chime of bells above me as I push through the door. Dr. Glenn is sitting behind the counter, invested in a crossword puzzle, his KFC colonel beard twisting between his fingers. <coughs> he hears my approach and looks up, smiling. Well, in the hell can I be of a shit? He stops when he meets my eyes. Well, I. And then casts his gaze around the room as if he'd forgotten where he was. Conflicting emotions dance across his face, alternating between fear and revulsion, the desire to help, the urge to run. I give my best smile despite the flutter of unease in my stomach. Get out, he says with such finality that it catches me off guard. This wasn't what I expected from the man who'd given me suckers for booster shots. Doctor again, I start, but then he start, stands up and shouts, Get out! Get out of here! Whatever you are, don't come back! His eyes bug out, his lemon tea falls to the ground in a twinkle of glass and ice. Never had I been rejected so outright by someone I cared and respected. It hurts in a way I hadn't experienced since childhood. A loss of control, I suppose, or a challenge to what you thought you knew as fact. I back out the door, bells jingling overhead, and run to the only person I knew who could never reject me, never run in fear. Day is moved on towards dusk when I finally arrive at the gates of Cedar Hill Cemetery. It must be a holiday because I'm not the only one who's chosen today for a visit. A large procession of people mill about the stones, leaving flowers and tears on the graves of their relatives. I look up at the overcast sky, perfect weather for a depression session. My dad's headstone stands near the middle of the manicured lawn. I find it eyes closed. I'd been here enough times, which is good because my face starts rearranging itself again, making me lose my balance but not my motivation. When I see the familiar pine tree I quicken my stride, I'm practically running before I fall to my knees at the foot of his name, carved for eternity, until acid rain do you part. Dad? 
It's not much, but enough to express all the warring emotions inside me. I need you. Dad, what should I do? As if on cue, the voice of my brother Donnie drifts from behind me. This is a shitty situation we're in, huh, Eddie? I twist around, surprised, but he's not there. A woman glances up at me, meeting my gaze, before returning to her mourning. Donnie, where are you? Huh, well, he replies, I've been here. Inside you. For a moment, I'm certain my heart has frozen solid. I slip my hands beneath the hood to the back of my head, and sure enough, a new mouth has formed beneath my mat of hair. It bursts into life, and I let out a yelp. Nothing, he says. I set up the perfect, that's what she said, for you. He starts laughing, and Jesus Christ, I can feel his mouth moving. I feel like I'm going to vomit. Donnie, I manage. Donnie, what's going on? Am I having a bad nitrous trip? There's no response except for the twitter of blue jays and the surrounding oaks. A light rain begins to fall, and one by one the visitors pop up their umbrellas and reply. Eddie, he whispers. You know you're dead, right? The pitter-patter of rain swells, and I'm once again surprised at the number of people in the park that day. The sweet smell of rotting leaves reaches my nose, and I hold it in, tasting it. Yes, I guess I had known. Some things are just harder to face than others. That man, three headstones over, I say. That's Richard Grady, isn't it? He's dead, too. I feel the extra eye, his eye, swivel on my cheek towards the direction I'm pointing. That's him, Donnie replies. Used to piss him off so much in chem class, remember when we set his desk on fire? I did, when he mentioned it. He died four years after his wife, he continues. There was a rumor that he'd spent more time here than at home to be with her. Looks like old habits die hard. I watch the old man kneel over the grave of his equally deceased wife. There's an odd flicker emanating from his face that obscures his eyes, though I'm sure they'd filled with grief. Something about his dead mourning. The dead gives me the creeps. I shudder and put a hand on Dad's headstone to steady myself. It's not so strange, really, my brother says. You were doing the same just now. I tremble again, disturbed by the fact he'd just read my mind. How did it happen? Us dying, I mean. I realized I'd forgotten a pivotal moment in my life, death. Close your eyes. I do and find myself walking through a forest with Donnie at my side. We're hiking to the perfect camping spot in nearby mountains of Perth. Something reflective catches my eye and I call him back to help me. It's a mason jar, buried so that only the lid pokes out above the compact dirt. A childish curiosity overcomes us and we start digging it out with the back of a hammer. After all, anything could be inside it. Both of us take turns going at it when I hear the low rumble of what sounds like a cougar or black bear. I look up in time to see the grill of the truck that crushes both of our heads against the tree behind us. I'm thrown from my body as if from the impact of the crash from my new vantage point. I could watch as the truck pulls back, the hood and bumper crumpled like paper, allowing the mess that is our bodies to slide to the ground. The driver gets out, assessing first the damage of his car before turning to our lifeless bodies. One glance at our faces, crushed to the point of unrecognition, confirms our deaths to him, and he gives an approving nod. Lighting a cigarette, he kneels forward into the beam of our headlights, and for the first time I see his face. It's Chris. My old buddy Chris, who'd had the, had the run-in with a suicidal deer. He loads our bodies into the back of the truck, washes down the tree with bleach and leaves. Good friends are hard to come by, huh? Donnie says from within and without my head. I open my eyes and we're back in the cemetery. Night has swallowed day. Still, the mourners wander about the lawn, pausing to cry, sometimes giving in to hysterics before continuing their march. 
Why did he do it? I ask. Why do any of us do anything? He replies. Personal gain. Even when we help others, we do it for the good feelings and butterflies we get, as much as we don't like to admit it. Doesn't seem like he helped either of us much. No, he agrees. This time was purely selfish. He did it for Lily. I hadn't had the heart to tell you, but they'd been sleeping together for a while now. You don't blame me, right, man? I mean, he was your best friend. It's hard to breach that kind of subject. Besides, I told you she was a bitch. To be honest, I don't remember a girl named Lily, let alone a humiliating relationship with her. Donnie again picks up on this thought. I guess even love isn't safe from death. She was with him today when he was hamming up the story about the deer. She could hardly keep a straight face. A fragment of memory floats down to me and I grasp at it hungrily. A date we'd had that ended up with us sneaking onto the top of an old Aladdin movie theater. The first place we'd made love, though certainly not the last. She cheated on me. I can feel my face burn hot with shame, another abandonment, this time ending in the death of not only me but my brother as well. But it didn't have to be over yet. I stand up with a purpose avoiding the eternally grieving spirits at as I make my exit, and when I reach the gate I run. Why run, he says, we're dead. Wherever we want to be, that's where we were. We're standing inside Chris's house now, just outside his room. The door is shut, but I can hear him talking, talking to the girlfriend he'd stolen. The seed of rage sprouts into a clawing thrush of vines. A clawing thrush of vines. Holy shit. <laughs> Good screaming, everybody. This is it, brother. His voice echoes more inside my head than out. You can make them pay. They killed us. They killed me, Eddie. His voice cracks for a moment, and I'm fed the memory of late-night gaming sessions together, fighting over the last beer and secrets told in confidence. You can't let him get away with it, big brother. You couldn't protect me, but you can make things even, make things fair. I think over what should be an easy decision, but it's not. Chris did the unspeakable, but did that mean I should return the favor? We've been best friends since we were kids, even if he'd forgotten the bond, it didn't mean I had to. Suddenly the room begins to flicker, in and out of focus like a strobe light. I'm reminded of Richard Grady in the same flashing light I'd seen slipping from his eyes. I know then, without explanation, that this is a crossroads. This is where I can forgive and surrender to the universe, or unleash it on Chris. The image of Dad smiling and shaking his head blossoms in my mind, and with it, the flicker continues to grow. Love takes a long time to grow. Donnie pipes up again. Let's see how long her neck can stretch. Chris sits at the edge of his bed, still reeling from the phone call he'd received. Lily had slept through the whole thing, and though he considers waking her up with the news, decides against it. There'd be plenty of time for grief. Eddie's pickup had been found at the bottom of a cliff with his body crushed inside. The officer who told him this had explained he'd likely fallen asleep at the wheel, which wasn't uncommon at all. They'd suspected he'd been out for the night camping, judging by all the gear scattered around the impact site. My best friend, Chris Marvel, is gone. God, I wonder how his mom's doing. First her husband, now her only child. He stands and heads for the door, thirsty for a drink. The stickiness is the first thing he notices. It oozes up between his toes, causing the carpet to cling to his bare feet. He glances down to find a thickening pool of blood seeping from beneath the door, which swings open with awful finality. He has enough time to whisper, Eddie? Before the air around him reverberates into a deep hum like a subwoofer accented by agonizing, elongating screams of his wife behind him.
That was a real uh, mind fuck of a story. Yeah, dude. <laughs> I don't even. I don't even know what to say. Don't ask me. That was. That went so many different fucking places. I might. I might need to listen to that before I really understand it. Yeah. It definitely. seemed like a uh, vengeful spirit that didn't know like an All Hallows Eve thing was happening. I definitely lost. I lost it with the names, and then they. At the last paragraph, they just started throwing out names here well, and the main, there. And the, main like, character's, yeah. the main character's name was Eddie. His brother was Donnie. <laughs> Hitler was the passed out dude in the room. And Chris was the friend that did the murdering. So uh, the ending is basically he gets revenge on the dude. The whole, like, face-shifting thing, like... I mean, I guess, I guess what he was saying was, like, uh, he was dead and he was realizing that he had his brother's parts all over him because they had been smashed but together. But people can they still had, like, see him? I mean, yeah, it was like a... I feel like it was like an evil dead, like, ghostly haunting thing. Like, he died in such a way that, like, he came back as, like, a fucking monster. The doctor thing uh, is what solidifies that. Like, well, it's... That's what I was thinking. It was fucking nuts, though. That was a nuts story. Oh, <laughs> how'd you feel about this episode, Harold? Claws, claws, <laughs> exactly. That's how I felt. Big, meaty claws. I don't approve. <laughs> but it's SpongeBob. <laughs> no, it's the best episode of SpongeBob. It's the one where they're they're playing the band in the dome. And the guy's yelling at Mr. Krabs because he can't play a fucking flute. <laughs> <laughs> That's my favorite episode. You got any, uh, any, any scenes we can act out? <laughs> any scenes we can act up? I can't even, like, I'm trying to think of how we Now go. I'm on Lord of the Rings and I'm just like... Yeah, pretty much. Except I was thinking, like, the, uh... Tonight... Will be a night to remember. I mean, that's that's a good one too. But I was actually thinking what I was actually thinking about was the Balrog scene. <laughs> it's Gandalf. <laughs> you could go over there. <laughs> no, go over there. Go over there. You're gonna be Gandalf. What? You're gonna be Why Gandalf. Why am I Gandalf? Who you're are you? Ga- you're gonna be Gandalf. <laughs> so the Balrog, the Balrog is right in front are you of you. Frodo? The ball, yes, I'm Frodo and you're Gandalf. <laughs> you, the Balrog is right in front of you. <gasps> what are you gonna yell? What do you yell at the Balrog? <laughs> no, that's not what Gandalf does. You shall not pass. And so he slams down the staff and the Balrog falls. The Balrog falls, but it grabs onto his ankle with the whip and it's pulling him down. And he yells. <laughs> no, no, what does he say? Fly, you fools! And then Frodo goes, No! <laughs> and that's it. Thanks for listening, folks. Weed, you wouldn't believe, and I get more ass than a troll.